Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're visiting, welcome to our church community. Glad you are here to um, worship with us overall and, and now to learn about more about Christ uh, with us. Grab my water. Do you mind grabbing that for me, babe? The other side. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks. You're cute. Am I going? <laughs> what? Want to go on a date sometime? Or? Yes. All right. <laughs> it's my wife. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> clarify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to dive right in today. We're in a series in the book of Matthew. So, um, again, if you're visiting, we're going to catch up to speed here a little bit. Uh, we're in the middle of a longer series. We've been going through all of Matthew, which has been taking us a year up to this point, over a year. And we'll be in it through uh, mid-December at this point with a couple of breaks. Next week we'll break for Easter to look more pointedly at the resurrection and a couple things this summer as well. But um, for the most part, finishing up around the holidays uh, later this year. But today's passage is Matthew 19, 13 to 30. Uh, Matthew is the first um, gospel account and actually the first book of the New Testament telling us the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry, his death, or re- resurrection, ascension, and his commissioning to the church. And we are in this pre-cross, pre-death of Christ, pre-resurrection ministry where he's teaching about the kingdom of God. Or it's just synonymous, really, if you see that phrase and it's a bit, a bit enigmatic, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, just think salvation. God, God is setting a kingdom up in the world that will benefit sinners, that will benefit his pe- the people that he loves. But in the process, he's going to do the things that all good kings do, especially from an Old Testament perspective, in fighting our battles for us. Going to war on behalf of the, of, the, of the people and providing for them, bringing peace and order inside the walls of the kingdom and so forth. God, God does that all for us, and he's doing that through Christ. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. It's near and at hand through the ministry of Christ, but not fully here until he dies on the cross for sins and in that way defeats our enemies. Until he dies on the cross for sins and in that way makes a home for us to be not banished anymore from him, but we can enter the walls of his city again. We can get back into the garden of his presence after Adam and Eve were kicked out millennia ago. We can actually get back again because sin is taken care of. We can get back to where he is and worship him and be with him again perfectly. So we've been talking about this. Jesus has, and Matthew as well, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. They've all been anticipating the cross, and today we're going to continue the story Jesus is entering the Judean region on his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to die on a cross uh, for the sins of the world. Uh, We're not quite there yet, but he's on his way. And as he's on his way, we've been seeing this repeated theme too happen in Matthew, where Jesus will regularly butt heads with really good, religious, self-righteous people. Uh, And so these these serve as the main antagonists of the story as well. If you're newer to the gospel accounts of the New Testament, In one sense, Satan, you could say, is the main antagonist of the story, but a close second is the children of Satan, who are all of us until we're saved from that condition. But children of Satan, biblically, are people who are self-deifiers. They they worship self. They they defame God, and, and they rely more on morality and things that come from our own heart rather than the saving work of God to save. And there are many other things to say about that as well, but these are the types that Jesus is butting heads with. Like, on, the, on outward appearance, good people. Inward, not so much, but on all outward appearance, very, very good people that miss what it means to truly be a person of God because they rely on self, not God. So religious people will always butt heads with Christ because Jesus says, you'll never be good enough. Your solution isn't you, it's me. And we'll see a version of this theme play out today 
as well. So let's start reading in Matthew 19, 13 to 15. I'll read today's passage in three sections. The first two verses or three verses will set the whole thing up. And we'll spend most of our time in in the latter interaction Jesus has with one of these self-righteous people. Uh, But the first is this, you know, brighter background, you could say, of contrast that sets the stage for the rest of it. So verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, or the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So we're not going to spend as much time on this section today, mostly due to the fact that we looked at a more prolonged interaction that Jesus has with children and with his disciples watching this interaction not too long ago. So there are some repeated themes here. But for those of you who are new to this, for Jesus, children, whenever he brings children to himself and talks about the kingdom of God in relation to kids, children are in one sense actual children, but more so it's a metaphor for people who realize that they are like children before a holy God. In other words, spiritually small, spiritually unintelligent, spiritually incapable, spiritually weak, and spiritually incapable of providing for self as well. All the things that that kids are, you could add more to that as well. But in the first century, children were actually further down in the social totem pole than they are today uh, as well. So these things are true, we would say, about kids today, but even more so in a social sense, uh, for the Jews of the first century. So there's that piece of background as well. But in general, it's a metaphor for spiritually incapable people who recognize that before a holy God. And that's why Jesus says, to such or to these types of people belong the kingdom. To these types of people belong salvation. These types are the ones who think this way and who understand true things about their heart are the ones that enter the kingdom of God. Who see their sin, and like the kids here in the passage, like them, come to Jesus unconditionally and are blessed by having his hands being laid upon them. To such belong the kingdom. So this is a really important setup for what happens next. We're going to see a lot of contrast today. So have this little interaction between these children and what he teaches with the children there, the metaphor he makes with that, and have that in mind as a contrast to what we're going to read next. And I'll make some connecting points here between the two a little bit later on. But Matthew 19, 16 to 22 then says this. This is the second section. So after this, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, so let's back up here and walk through this uh, verse by verse, essentially, at least section by section. But we'll start with verse 16. So after the whole kids thing occurs, a man, a young man who we read about in verse 22 is very, very wealthy. He has great possessions. Came up to Jesus with an urgency. You can sense the urgency here a bit. He comes up and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Which, if you know anything about the gospel, that's the wrong question to ask. 
we start talking about doing, that's the wrong perspective to have, and we'll uh, unpack that here in a second. In fact, Jesus is about to help him understand that in a layered manner, and in a somewhat, I think, tailored-to-this-guy approach. So he speaks to the man. He speaks to the circumstance. He speaks to his idols. He speaks to the obstacles that are apparent, clearly apparent for Christ, for Jesus, uh, in this guy's mind and heart between him and what it means to actually enter the kingdom that we just read about before. So in a somewhat tailored to this guy kind of way, he responds. Verse 17 and following. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? I love that. There's only one who is good, God. So think about that for a second. So what is he saying about the guy then? When the guy hears this, the rich young man, uh, what, is he, what is he, by inference, what should he conclude? What's the saying about him? That he's not good, right? Like, there's only one who's good, and it's God. So it's not you, <laughs> he's basically saying. So Romans 3 gets at this as well. Elsewhere in the New Testament, clearly says it's all-encompassing. No one righteous. And more than that, no one does good. No one ultimately does good before God from a pure heart in a way that makes us favorable to him. But then he adds, it gets a little bit more interesting and confusing because then he adds... Keep the commandments. If you want to enter life, you know what the Old Testament says. Keep the commandments and you will enter life. Which again, is interesting because we know that Jesus doesn't really ultimately believe that. He's coming into the world to establish a new covenant, a new testament that's in some ways fulfilling the old, but in some ways very different from the first one that's not based on doing. It's not based on law keeping. The first one is actually set up to fail to give way to Christ, a much better way that's based on what he does, not what we do. So we know that from elsewhere in Matthew and how he taught about the law back in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as from what the rest of the scriptures say. Like in Galatians 2.16, it says, We know that a person is not justified or made right before God or made favorable to God by works of the law or by works of the commandments, but rather by faith or simple trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, for your trust in God. By God's grace you've been saved. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And here's the key. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Christianity is, in a word or a phrase, a boastless religion. It comes up a lot in the New Testament where it says, who can boast? If God does absolutely everything, absolutely everything to save us, who can boast in it? Who can say, I've done this? Who can say, I've turned his head to me a little bit more than someone else? Who can say, I've manufactured this? Who can say, I've performed admirably before God? If God is the one alone who chooses, who saves, who softens hearts, who comes into the world to die substitutionarily in our place, who can claim that as their own work? And of course, no one can boast. The only thing we can boast in is God. The scriptures say the only thing we can boast in is the amazingness of our, of our Savior. Amen. It says elsewhere. <laughs> Amen. All right, so the question then becomes, why is Jesus saying this then? Why would Jesus, if he knows this, if the rest of the scriptures are all set up to cater to this idea that God saves and we don't, it's not by law, but by God's grace that we're saved, why is Jesus going to uh, this area of keeping the commandments with this guy? And, and again, you've got to understand here that Jesus does this a lot. In the Gospels, he speaks to the situation in a tailored manner to the guy, the person, the circumstance, not necessarily in wider, all-circumstance-applying truths. In other words, the rich young man needs to hear the Gospel 
and be confronted with what the kingdom of God is all about, including his sin. It's a bigger deal than he realizes, and we'll see that here very shortly. It's a bigger deal than he realizes. He needs to be confronted with all of that in this particular manner. So again, we've already seen you're not good. No one is. And it's interesting, right next to that he says, you know what the Old Testament says, keep the commandments. We're, kind of in a, we're still in an Old Testament-y kind of part of biblical history here because the cross hasn't happened. Until Jesus dies on the cross, there's no New Testament. That's when the new covenant comes into the world. So there's still a little bit of a looking back on the law, and Jesus is using the law in, a way, in one of the major ways it was always meant to be used, and that was to make sin, sin a bigger deal, to make it appear that we can't, to be, make it very clear that we're very distant and banished from God and that we're incapable of saving ourselves. There's one of two ways you can go. When you hear you're at your core are not a good person, only God is good, that we're very evil at our core, and to keep the commandments is what brings us into eternal life. There's one of two ways you can go with that, right? You're going to go to yourself and say, I can do it. Or you're going to say, I can't. You'll fall on your face before God and say, God, there must be another way. Can you make it? Can you bring me back to yourself through some other means? I can't do this. One of two ways. And, and the, as we'll see here in a second, actually as we read, but as we'll see as this progresses, the rich young man takes the, op, takes the wrong way and misconstrues the gospel. And it's interesting, for this guy, it's actually a bit disheartening. You can get a sense of disheartening here to hear this, to hear do more of the commandments because he thinks he's done the commandments already. Right? He says, I've done all of these. What else is there? He's looking for something else to do. And this has another couple layers to the story that I think tells us two things. One, this guy's greatly delusional because no one does the commandments perfectly. The scriptures are clear. If you want to be all about law-keeping before God, you have to be absolutely perfect in action and in thought. Otherwise, it's as if you've broken all of the commandments. It's one of the main arguments that the Apostle Paul gives in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and in context. You want to be about the law, he says, you've got to keep them all perfectly. So it's about perfection, which no one can keep them, or it's about complete failure uh, with morality and ethic and law-keeping and commandment-keeping before a holy God. So we know he's delusional here. Uh, No one keeps them. But second, paradoxically, he still knows something's missing, right? He says, what do I lack? He thinks he's done and probably has to some outward degree been really focused on the Old Testament law quite a bit in his life. As a Jewish man, he knew the the scriptures decently well, and he was keeping them to the best of his ability. But he still paradoxically knew that something was still lacking. And so this tells us then, among other things, that being good is not enough. Something deep within his soul knew that something aside from the commandments was necessary. Something aside from the commandments was necessary to enter eternal life. And Jesus addresses both of these issues, the delusional aspect of keeping the commandments and the lack aspect of what else do I need with what follows in verses 21 and 22. When Jesus says, this is what you, if you want to be perfect, this is what you need to do. Go and sell all you have, and then come follow me. Then the guy goes away sad because he had great wealth and was not willing to give up that one thing that meant the most to him. So wrapped up in that statement, go and sell all you have and come follow me, and wrapped up in that response of the man who went away sad because he had great wealth, I think are these truths. In other words, this is what's probably happening in the mind of, of the rich young man as this is transpiring, or at least later as he reflected on it, or at least we see from his actions, these are the hard truths communicated. One, you have not kept the commandments. 
maybe you've kind of kept some, but you haven't kept the commandments because money is clearly more important to you than God. Clearly, right? You can't read this and say that money's not that big a deal to this guy. Money is a functional savior for him. So you're not good. You're not a commandments keeper. In fact, it's interesting, one of the Ten Commandments, Jesus, Jesus lists off a number of the Ten Commandments here in this response to the rich young man, but he leaves out, do not covet. Do not want what someone else has. And so when the guy says, I've, I've done all those, he's not responding to do not covet, but he's bringing up through, which is pretty synonymous with the worship of money or the desire for money more than God. Really, it's clear here that he's not keeping the commandments, in particular, the command of not coveting Closely related, related to that, again, worshiping money. So, but money is especially deceiving. We see a lot, the scriptures talk a lot about money, I think because of how deceiving it can be in fooling us into thinking that we're spiritually sufficient. That our works accomplish something for us. Because we might see that in life, right? We might work really hard at our job and have a lot to show for it, buy a lot of stuff, Then we hear the gospel say, don't work for anything. Like, don't work or perform before God because everything is given to you as a gift. In fact, if you work for it, you're self-deifying. You're worshiping self and and you're no different from a pagan, from one who's completely godless. You're no different. There's there's two categories. You're saved by grace or you're somehow trying to self-justify. Even from an atheistic worldview, you could say there's some self-justification happening there with the theological backbone and philosophical backbone of it. So those are the two things. So money can do that. Money can, can fool us into thinking that we're sufficient, that works do something for us. So having lots of material wealth then and perceived self-sufficiency or thinking that we're spiritually wealthy are very, very closely related. You guys see the connection there? Having lots of material wealth or just being very comfortable in life and having perceived I'm okay or self-sufficiency or thinking that we're spiritually wealthy are very closely connected. And that's why it gets to be so deceiving and especially difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Because when they're confronted with the message that you're not okay, they look at their life and say, I'm actually doing really, really well. (laughs) I'm really comfortable. I've made a name for myself. I'm quite famous. People look up to me. I'm strong in the eyes of the world. And you're saying, I'm not all of those, but the experience for me physically says otherwise. So for poor people, I told you guys before, some of you anyway, that I used to be involved in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Chicago and Franklin. There was a, on that intersection uh, at least years ago, um, a pretty strong homeless community or poor community that I went out and I was a part of an evangelism ministry that gave sandwiches and brought people to um, shelters in the winter if it was cold out and we'd share Christ with them. Uh, along the way. But I, to this day, you know, it was especially impactful for me when I was doing it. But to this day, I think back on that as a great example of how, um, how poor people, when you, when you confront them with the gospel and say you're needy, because the gospel says that, right? You have needs before God, big needs. When you do that, for someone who's physically needy, it's not a huge chasm to jump. They can make that connection a little bit more, the physical to the spiritual, a little bit, little bit more synergy between the two. But again, for a rich person, I've got three boats, two cabins, millions of dollars. I'm loved at my job, really happily married, never been sick in my life. I'm talking extremes here, obviously, but um, comfort is the whole idea. When you talk to someone like that and you say you have needs, they say, well, actually, unless God is working on the heart to prove, in, the, in working through the scriptures to say, no, this is what's true. 
You're actually blind, pitiable, poor, and naked, Jesus says to the church in Romans or in Revelation 3. That's actually what's true about you spiritually. That chasm can be, can be spanned by the grace of God for rich people. It's not impossible for them to be saved, but um, it's much more difficult, as Jesus says here in a little bit. So that's the first thing then, one of these hard truths. There's two of them. The first is you've not kept the commandments. You're not good. Money's your savior. It's deceiving. The second then is you need to turn from this. You need to be with me. You need to follow me. You need to turn from self-sufficiency and believe. So Jesus is not saying here that selling, the actual act of selling all your possessions is what saves you. Because he never says that. We don't see elsewhere in the scriptures how it's this all-encompassing thing. Remember, he's speaking to the situation and the circumstance. And for this guy, money is his functional savior. It's his idol. And so really the command here is widespread turning from self-sufficiency and worship of other gods to a God who saves. Turning from the God of money in this particular case and being with Jesus. That's what Jesus' invitation is here. Turn from the God of money and be with me. It's so significant and noteworthy to note here that Jesus' last words to him are, come and be with me. That's the ultimate, ultimate thing Jesus says, is what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to be saved? He says a number of things, this contextual issue here, but then ultimately he says, come and follow me. Be with me as I head to Calvary and die on a cross and bleed before you in love because I'm dying in your place. That's ultimately what we should gaze at and say, that's how I'm saved. That's how I'm rich. That's how I'm taken care of, spiritually speaking, in the kingdom of God. That's the door. That's the key. That's how I get in. That's how I'm not banished anymore. That's what we should gaze at. So when Christ says, follow me, I mean, literally, a lot of times what Jesus is saying in the gospel is, I mean, literally, follow me as I'm walking into Judea now, ultimately to Jerusalem, and ultimately to walk up a hill and die on a cross for the sins of the world. Follow me there, because that's ultimately what you need to look at and put your trust in. So it's wonderful then, one of the things I love about this mini passage, and we talked about this last week too from a different angle, is there's wonderful movement here in this passage, almost like a little encapsulated Old Testament to New Testament type teaching, just in a few verses, from law to Jesus, movement from law to Christ. So following him, then again, it's most important, we're not good, only God is good. Therefore, we need God, not ourselves, and certainly not our own abilities to try and do good, before God. But sadly for this young man, denying self and embracing his fallenness, believing he was spiritually poor to the uttermost before a holy God, and clinging to Jesus alone for salvation just simply wasn't worth it. And we see it by his actions, right? I mentioned this last week. Your beliefs will always determine your behavior. It's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for everyone. What you believe about the nature of salvation, and in this guy's case, he actually believed money was more important than God. And so his actions followed suit. And so he left him sad. Very spiritually zealous guy, by the way, too. Spiritually zealous. Knew a lot about the Bible, had a lot of spiritual zeal, wanted to be saved. But at the end of the day, he didn't want, really want to be saved. He wanted money and worship of self and self-sufficiency ultimately more than that. So a really, really, really hard thing an offensive thing even to hear. I mean, it's like saying to a, think about the most moral person you know uh, in your life, Christian or not, most moral person who want, actually, who's not Christian, Let me, otherwise it won't work here. So, <laughs> um, It's like saying to a really moral person who wants to know what it takes to be saved, 
your good deeds are absolutely not important at all. All of your good deeds are unimportant. Jettison them from your life. So what Paul gets at in his argument in Philippians 3, he says, all the good things that I can count to my credit, that I could put on a list and say, look at what I've done, I consider trash, garbage, loss for the sake of Christ. Not bad things. He's not saying I'm turning from bad things. I'm, I'm turning from all the good things I've done on my own strength, for my name's sake. And I'm saying, this is not how I get in. I'm, I'm casting my, my golden crowns on the floor in the mud, and I'm saying, I'm coming to Jesus empty-handed. I'm saying, you save. Your righteousness saves me. That was to my righteousness. That was to my credit. But I want the righteousness that comes down from heaven, out of the sky, in the form of a person who becomes like me, who walks among me, who loves me, and dies as a human being, as an advocate for me in my place. That's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of humankind is, can be to our credit, something we can boast, with that idea of boasting again, something we can ultimately boast about. But something, again, that is, uh, this is a probably newer concept for some of you, but Christianity is very distinct here in that Christianity claims it's not just the bad things we're saved from. We're not looking for a Savior just from the bad things. We're looking for a Savior from all the good things in life that we've done all our righteousness done to our name's credit, for our fame, to buffer us up, all our morality, all our goodness. Those are things that we believe Jesus came into the world because those could be claimed as a boastful thing. It's a self-defined thing, right? To bring before God and to say, I created these things. So, it, so Christians believe that then, as well, it's all-encompassing death of Christ takes away all of that, all of the things good and bad things that we have in our hands until all we have left is Jesus on a cross and we look at that and say, that is it. He alone and his work on the cross saves me. So I think then, think back to the first few verses with the childlike teaching about the child entering the kingdom, the childlike sinner, the connection between all of that and this rich young man here in in the middle parts of this section are stark, right? And noteworthy. The teaching here in the in sec, two, two sections together are those who know they're incapable and childlike get in. But those who think they are something and capable, even staunch law keepers, do not get into the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazingly paradigm shifting? Even law keepers, like this guy, who's imperfect, but he's, he's looking at law and he's keeping a lot of it. He's not getting in because he thinks he's something. But those who think they're nothing, like a child and incapable of providing salvation for self, are the ones who recognize that and who see Jesus as the solution, are the ones that are, that are entering. The child comes to Jesus freely and sits on his lap. The rich young ruler or man comes and asks Jesus, what else can I do for you? How else can I buffer my name? How else can I be a moral person? Wrong questions. It's about him. Do you see? With a child, the child is just coming freely without any precondition, without anything. I mean, think about a child to a parent. What defines the relationship? Is a child thinking you know, every day about, I've got to do all these, these things to, to make my parents happy with me? No, it's, it's the love of the parents that defines the relationship. The child's coming empty-handed, just happy and free, unconditionally loved by their parents But to say before Jesus, what else can I do, is a damning, damning thought. But all right, let's keep going. 
it gets even better. Matthew 19, 23 to 30, the last part. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So in this final section, the rich young man leaves sadly, and Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for the disciples. The disciples, his twelve, are there, and he turns to them and says, only with difficulty will rich people be saved. And again, he goes further. Again, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. You note here that the disciples are exceedingly astonished by this when he said it, and they widen the principle out to include all when they question, well, then who can be saved? They understand the metaphor. When Jesus then fixes his gaze on them, he looks at them and says, this is important, with man this is impossible. It's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It's crucial to understand One of the most important, I think you can know, period, about the gospel as it's portrayed here in these middle sections of Matthew. With man, this is impossible. Who can be saved? It's impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. So in other words, it's impossible if we try. I mean, think about if salvation's over here and we're here, we're the camel and this is the eye of the needle. And we could try a trillion upon a trillion upon a trillion times and a camel is never how small going to go through the eye of the needle. The point here is impossibility. There are interpretations out there in this passage that argue that they believe there is a gate in the city of Jerusalem around the wall that was called the eye of the needle and that camels uh, could go through that gate to, to convey that it's more possible, but it's not what he's saying. The point is, the point is it's, it's ridiculously impossible. It's never going to happen. If, if you're here and you want salvation like the rich young man, what do we have to do to be saved? Sorry, absolutely impossible by human strength. Nothing you can do. But then the good news. That's the bad news. But here's the gospel. But not with God. All things, including your salvation and making camels pass through eyes of needles because God raises the dead and God makes all things out of nothing. God can do it. So including our salvation is possible with God. So do you see how if we actually believed that, if we actually believe it was impossible, nothing we could do, nothing we could do to turn God's head, nothing we could do to, be, to make ourselves favorable to him, nothing we could do to save ourselves, how quickly then we would leave self, how quickly we would leave morality, how quickly we would leave the commandments behind for the sake of following Jesus. Or how the last thing we would say to Jesus is, what else can I do? 
That'd be the last thing we would say. If we believe the camel eye through the last thing we'd say before Christ is, what else can I do to be saved? Instead, we would say, like someone else says, gospel accounts, beating his chest, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That would be our prayer. That would be our statement before God. Just have mercy on me. Because nothing I've done in my life, nothing, the good and the bad, is to my credit. Nothing is helping me to pass through the eye of the needle. Nothing is helping me to enter the kingdom of God except what you do for me on the cross. What you do for me by walking out of a tomb in overwhelming death on my behalf and the world's behalf. In verses 27 to 30 then, Jesus discusses the reward for those who do this, who turn from self and embrace his name, which is namely a hundredfold of spiritual family and eternal life uh, and as he says here in verse 28, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will, will be with me. You'll sit on 12 thrones. You'll rule with me. Uh, the scriptures talk about how, uh, we don't know how this will work, but the church will judge angels on the last day. That's from 1 Corinthians. Uh, um, some teaching there. We don't know how it's going to all work out, but there will be some participatory judgment happening here from uh, the 12 disciples as well. And I, and I like I said, first service, that's all I can say about this. I have no idea what that means, technically. I just have no clue. But, um, but it does mean that, that the disciples and all of those who leave the old life and self and sin and turn and repent and are just with Christ and who trust in his forgiveness will be where he is and will share in his rule in the new world, which is a new earth that we all long for and pray Christ will hasten. So then he says, everyone who's done that, the key here, though, is for my name's sake. So really what we're seeing is someone leave the old and embrace the gospel. For my name, they're clinging to Christ. It's just a picture in a more maybe different or poetic way you could say. This is just saying those who embrace the forgiveness of sins, for my name's sake, leave behind old and and cling to the new. Those are the ones that will be saved. Then he says that last verse again. He bookends the whole thing by saying, but again, many who are first, in other words, who appear strong, who appear intelligent, who appear capable, who appear moral, who appear independent in a good manner, will not be saved. They'll not fit in. But many who are last, who are weak, feeble, meek, simple, incapable, blind, naked, just flat out incapable spiritually before God, but who recognize that and who cling to the cross for dear life, those are the ones that will, that will enter. This is crazily paradigm shifting, you guys. And, and it should be something that should shock us into some self-examination because this is a guy who knew the Bible, the rich young man. He knew the scriptures decently well. He even had zeal for God and he wanted to be saved, but because he thought himself strong and spiritually adult-like and not childlike, he was kept out. He wanted something more and did not believe Christ alone was sufficient to save so in conclusion, then, uh, two things, and this is the one obvious thing. There's obvious, obviously a good example and a, and a bad example here with the, the childlikeness and the rich young man. So the call here is, is self-examination. Don't be like the rich young man. Be childlike. So honestly ask yourself, wherever you guys are spiritually, Christian for 30 years, and possibly very, very mature and just close to Christ now, things are just going well spiritually, you would say. Still, ask the question, how am I, even just a little bit, like this rich young man? How am I like him? What's the first thing I think about when I think about Jesus and salvation? What's the first thing you think about? What comes to mind? Is it Jesus alone 
on a cross? Or is it working for Jesus? Or the idea of serving Jesus? Or the idea of keeping the commandments? You can't really have both here. It's either the one, Jesus alone, or Jesus plus doing some good things for him. The first is a Christian way of thinking. The latter is a religious, unbiblical way of thinking. Matthew 7, some of you guys were here for this months ago. We looked at this piece in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching a bunch of things. And he talks about the last day when there will be many people before him who are very, very spiritual and who claim to know him and who say things like, Jesus, don't you remember when I cast out demons for you and when I performed many mighty works in your name, when I served people in your name? This is what I've done for you. And Jesus' response to those people will be, I never knew you. I never knew you. Not I knew you for a little while and then something happened and I forgot you or you forgot me and you lost your salvation. I never knew you in that state. But think about that type of person and how it resembles the rich young man here, right? Because the first thing we think about when we think about Jesus or we think about judgment that last day and what we'll say to Christ is, look at what I've done for you. What's the mediatory thing, right? What's coming between God and that person when someone says that to him? Self, right? Look what I've done for you. It's, it's, again, an extremely damning thing. It's something that we're all born into. We're all born into self-justifying works. We're all saved from that state. Even as Christians, we'll drift there. This is why we have to ask these questions. Am I in any way drifting there? How am I like this guy? How am I like the rich young man? Or am I simply coming to him, beating my chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, trusting alone in his blood to cleanse, not what I do for him? Another question, another layer to this is, Do I think I'm a good person? Or do I think I'm a bad person incapable of doing before God? Very, very different. Jesus did not save good people. Good people don't enter the kingdom of God. Bad people enter who realize they're bad and who cling to the only one who is good. And who's done the best work, the most goodest is not a word, (laughs) but I just want to keep the good there. Goodest thing. Has ever happened in the history of the universe, God dying on a cross for the sins of, sins of the world. Have to understand that paradigm shift here. God is not a moralist. He's not a guru. He's not like Gandhi. He's not a prophet. He's not a really good guy telling you to copy him. He's a substitute. He's a sacrificial lamb. He's, a, he's, a, he's your hero. He's your champion. He's your king who fights your battles for you and for me. So they're very, very different things. And then third, In what way is my comfort, some of you might be very wealthy, some of you aren't, but you're comfortable now because you're healthy and you have a decent amount of stuff. In what way is my comfort leading me to functionally live as though I don't need God? Or how is my money a distraction from Jesus? That's a convicting one, right? How's a distraction? How's it taking my eyes off of him or off the ministry that I'm a part of here in the church? How is comfort taking my gaze away from the the bloodied cross? Or, it's a better question, how can I, in a positive sense, how can I use my money to be generous to others, to give out of joy for what God has given me first on the cross? The Bible says you can't serve two masters. There's money and there's God, and they can't both be served. So in what way is my comfort leading me to functionally live as though money is, is a God?
And Christian or not, we've all had money as a God. And some of you as Christians are veering towards that and are worshiping, bending the knee to it. So if that's you, wherever you are, the call here is to leave, just like the rich young man, just leave it. It doesn't mean that you give all your stuff away. It means you stop worshiping it and seeing self-sufficiency, hearing the whisper of self-sufficiency, the doctrine of self-sufficiency uh, through it, being very generous with your stuff. And the really, really good news here that's super easy to miss um, that we, we read a couple of times, and I'll tie in the first section here with the second, but look what it says here. Don't forget this. It says, all things, is what Jesus says, all things, including your salvation, are possible with God. He makes it possible. And then earlier in the passage, he lays his hands on children. This is what he does. And this is a wonderfully depictive of what happens when we as sinners come to Christ. He lays his hands. Notice there's no, there's no requirement for the children when Jesus is holding them. There's no, there's no precondition. There's no, I want you to do this or say this or think this or go and take a bath first. It's just he welcomes them to himself, lays his hand of salvation on them, and blesses them. God will bless you. He will bless me. He, he will continue to bless you if you're already a Christian if you come to him like a child with empty hands. And even if we're not, if you're in the state of being like the rich young man, he still has love for you. And it breaks his heart to see people leave and cling to idols. But that is, make no mistake, the one thing that will keep you away from him. It is, it is claiming that there is something more important than him and the worship of self and not seeing his death as sufficient. So question is again, which is it? But this is, the, this is the ultimate good news, is that he's died for the sin of self-sufficiency, praise God, the sin of idolatry, the sin of money worship, the sin of sexual sin, all of it and more. The darkest corners of our heart, and it is so dark if we're honest with ourselves, it's a very, very dark place inside here. But he shines light in it, he lights it up, and the light's strong enough, like we sang before, there are no more shadows, there's no more night. Jesus is called the light for a reason. If you, if you invite him in, if you go to the cross and cling to it, he will raise you from the dead. He will wash you clean of your sin by grace of love for you. This is what Christianity is all about. It's substitutionary on his, on his dime, on his watch, on his accord, not something that we manufacture. And praise God that's the case. We just simply cannot look at the cross and say, look what I have done can't look at the cross. God dying, God had to die to put us back from sin and death. He had to experience death. We can't look at that and say, look at what I've manufactured. I'm an amazing person. Right? It's just totally incompatible. You can't say that. That's the beauty of the cross. But the last being first as well. God delights in the last, the weakest being first because it screams God saves us by grace. If it was the first being first or the strongest being the leaders in the church or all of us were white-collar and had a ton of money and were the most smartest people in Minneapolis, what we'd have to conclude by those things is God saves the strongest. We're saved by what we do. God looks more favorably upon people that work really hard. But that's not what happens. It's very normal people who are saved, very blue-collar. Some people who are very intelligent, but most people who are just very average Joes. This is a big argument in 1 Corinthians 1 that I just love because Paul is saying to a church, it's a very humbling thing. Paul says, look around you guys, you're pretty normal. <laughs> you know? I don't know if they were thinking much higher themselves than uh, they probably were uh, or not, but uh, still, look around and we're all very different. We're diverse, we come from different backgrounds, we're different intelligence levels, different jobs, different amounts of money, different strengths and weaknesses and physical ways in a worldly sense. And God delights in that because we have to conclude then that from the, through the lens of that, that God saves us by grace, not by 
any pre-existing good. Not by any pre-existing good in our hearts. He's the light. This is dark. He shine, he's objective to us. He shines light in here and makes everything okay. Saves us. Praise God for that. Let me pray. God, thank you for the promise here. The visual, also the promise of being a God who lays hands, the hand of God, through the cross and the empty tomb, lays a hand on sinners like us by the Holy Spirit and saves us. Glory to God forever that the Bible is chock full of verbal ideas tied to you when salvation is talked about. It's constantly, we see in the Old Testament how your word says, we are called to wait on your salvation. We just wait, but you're the one who brings salvation into the world. We're called to wait on it. Again, very, very passive for us. You're the active figure. We're the passive recipients. You save by grace. We don't save ourselves by what we do, God. So, God, I pray against religiosity in a bad sense of the word. I pray against commandment keeping as the mediatory thing between us and you. We see in the Old Testament with Israel, it didn't work, and it didn't work for a reason. To make Israel and the world watching, there must be something, must be something else. Make them realize that. Make them long for the suffering servant of God who would come into the world and bear our sins on him. So sin then is not something we overcome in our hearts. It's something that's actually laid upon a human being who was also God 2,000 years ago, dying among criminals. The most evil thing that's ever happened, God dying in a cursed manner, and yet the greatest good coming out of that as well, uh, through salvation and through the empty tomb. Amazing. God, equip us, encourage us, give us joy in these concepts today, and free us from the worship of self. Uh, it's so deceiving, and we've all tripped over it and stumbled and fall flat on our face in the dust countless times. But thank you. It's one of the things that you died for, God, is disbelief. You died for self-worship. God, forgive us. Help us to come to you and rejoice. We no longer have to fear our banishment from you. We can rely alone on your precious blood and uh, what you have to give us there. It's the greatest gift of all time. In Jesus' name and for his name's sake we pray. Amen.